Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following program contains the names of people who have passed away. Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. We didn't go down the path of setting up a assembly first. We thought we would, in fact, get the structure, the foundation, as best as we could, and then they would be able to look at issues of capacity building, of uh, treaty readiness, of also an elected body for treaty. Advancing First Nations treaty processes in the Sunshine State and Sansong, a tale of resilience in the face of adverse government policy. She understood those two worlds better than us all because she shapeshifted. And that's inherited from her people who were removed from the Great Sandy Desert once the pastoral award came in and, you know, different government legislations that have shaped those people, yet they still remain resiliently strong and connected to their cultural obligations and their law. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The themes of voice, treaty and truth are the centrepieces of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which marked its fourth anniversary last month. While the proposed voice to Parliament remains a hotly and noisily contested issue at the national level, the other themes of treaty and truth are being progressed more quietly at the state level. Victoria has recently announced a First Nations-led commission of inquiry into the history of that state. And in Queensland, a treaty advancement committee has been charged to provide momentum for the push for First Nations treaties. Jackie Huggins is co-chair of the Queensland Treaty Advancement Committee and she joins me now. Arnie Jackie, welcome back to Speaking Out. Uh, Thanks very much, Larissa. It's been a while and uh, nice to be here. I was going to say it's been a while since we've had you on the show. How have you been since we last had a chat? Oh, look, really well. Uh, the COVID year has been good for me. Like, like you, I've managed to write another book, so that's fantastic. And, you know, um, taking care of my health, which is really a big thing. And uh, I think that's been helped by staying off planes and so forth and not getting, you know, too involved in headaches from uh, the national scene. So I'm home here now doing... A very important work now, and that is the Treaty Advancement Committee, of which I co-chair. Yes, well, that's what we wanted to talk to you about today. Very important work. In August 2020, the Queensland government committed itself to continuing down a path to treaty, and the committee you're chairing with Mick Gorda was formed to progress the process. What exactly have you been asked to do? Okay, well, we've been asked to look at uh, those recommendations, and by the way, All of our recommendations were approved or approved in principle. The ones that were approved in principle are the ones that require some funding and resource implications, which is fair enough. But uh, we were delighted that we're able to, I guess, you know, to do two very important things. And that is we've been uh, committed in principle to the establishment of a First Nations Treaty Institute and a truth and healing process. So for us, that was very encouraging. And there is a lot of goodwill from the state government at the moment to proceed with that. So we're implementing the uh, recommendations really of the report that we gave to Parliament in August last year. 
The Queensland Treaty process has followed a different approach to those in Victoria and the Northern Territory, with the government advisory bodies involving both First Nations and non-Indigenous leaders. Why was this approach chosen? Yes, well, uh, I, I guess it goes to the point that we always do things very differently here in Queensland. So, uh, and not not that's not a bad thing. It's a good it's thing. It's not a bad thing. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I guess Larissa, for us, in hindsight, it was good to see um, the work of particularly uh, Victoria, and we didn't go down the path of setting up a assembly first. We thought we would, in fact, get the structure, the foundation as best as we could, and then they would be able to look at issues of capacity building, of uh, treaty readiness, of also an elected body for treaty, for them to work through those things, you know, and more particularly to look at a truth-telling mechanism by which uh, we've seen in Victoria. It's been fabulous and we'd love to follow through with something like that. Because at the core of all our consultations, not only here in Queensland, but um, I believe in Victoria and Northern Territory, the core foundation was to have a process of truth-telling before we move forward with treaty. I want to come back to the notion of truth-telling and unpack that a little bit more from your perspective. But Mm. just before then, your committee, as you said, follows on work that you've done in 2019 and 2020, recommending the creation of that First Nations Treaty Institute to help First Nations and the wider Queensland community become, I guess, treaty-ready. From what you're hearing and what you're thinking about, what would this institute do and how long might it be before actual negotiations for a treaty or treaties might commence? Sure. Well, the institute would have a number of functions. It would help in terms of advising and facilitating a treaty-making framework. It would advise on the representative mechanisms and structures. It would certainly lead in the truth and healing process. And this capacity building, which is very important, would also be engaged in a process of uh, investigating what that looks like. And, of course, in so doing, you're supporting the development of governance models that would be suitable for First Nations. And that uh, engagement, as you've said, is it's for all Queenslanders. So we took this on board that we would talk to not only First Nations peoples, but the whole of Queensland, which is very different to Victoria and the Northern Territory, where they just spoke to First Nations peoples first. And I think there's a bit of an add-on with that because at the end of the day, here in Queensland, I think we're about 7% of the population, which which is quite high. But So therefore, you know, we've got to bring across that other 93% to get a treaty going in our country. Okay. Not only in our country, sorry, but in, in our state. Once we set up the Treaty Institute, they probably need about six months to set themselves up. And then the negotiations then, I think, can start in earnest. So perhaps, you know, realistically and quickly, I would love to see it by the end of next year. 
Listening to you speak about the very thoughtful process you've gone through to see what's best for Queensland, it's a great reminder that there's no one size fits all. But you just want to go back to this notion of truth-telling that you've mentioned as central to the work being done in Queensland on Treaty and Australia nationally and across the country at the state level. From your perspective, and you've been involved in the processes of reconciliation, you played a really big role through that reconciliation era, and now you're moving into this era and leading this treaty process. From your perspective, what is meant by truth-telling and why is it so important? It's um, really important to uh, have a mechanism by which, you know, people can, in fact, tell the truth, explain the truth and... I remember a dear, well, she was, uh, I think, the Jessie Street of Queensland. Her name was Mrs Muriel Langford. And she would always say to me, you know, Jackie, there can't be a reconciliation process without telling the truth. And way back then I kind of understood it, but I, I didn't understand it, if you will. But it's so true. You know, we've got to have a process by which we can explore, you know, our history and the impact of colonisation on First Nations peoples and, of course, you know, how it still continues today. And that can only be done by expert witnesses and those expert witnesses are our own people. And it really has been our first priority to look at some kind of truth-telling by which, you know, we weren't able to do this way back 30 years ago with the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. But I really do think that the work that was done, and I do agree with some people, particularly Jill Gallagher, who said the reconciliation process has really warmed up the treaty issues, you know, and I'm seeing it here in my state. I feel very excited, Larissa, but still, you know, sometimes you're very reticent to, you know, go with your full feelings. But it's kind of a feeling that I had when we walked over that bridge with such hope and inspiration that I hope that people may be now ready to tell the truth and to talk about it. I just want to tell you a little story. I don't know if you saw Ellen Fanning on the drum a couple of months ago. She did a story on an Aboriginal woman domestic servant who was actually on her grandfather or great-grandfather's property in Longreach. The challenge to her was to track down the woman and find her family. Well, she did that. And uh, this woman was the daughter of the lady, the very young girl that was in the photo as a domestic servant. Now, Ellen contacted me the next day. She did a story on ABC News and there were 800,000 hits. That's amazing. And people had read it from go to woe around this story. So, that gives me hope and that gives me something that I think we can, you know, really progress. And it's amazing. I think there's a bit of a readiness to have a conversation now. I'm feeling very positive about Well, you've had your finger on the pulse for a long time, so I guess you are well-placed to see if there's been a shift in public opinion. The piece you refer to by Ellen Fanning was incredibly powerful and a really great example of how First Nations history, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander history weaves in with the history of every other Australian. Just going back to this complicated process of truth-telling, the Victorian approach is in effect the establishment of a Royal Commission. And this has 
hasn't been recommended in your model, will your committee be looking again on what that body will have in your state and what powers are needed for this really demanding and quite confronting process of examining Queensland's history of colonisation? Yes, certainly. And in fact, that is our next meeting. We'll be having a meeting and then followed by a workshop after that to look at that very thing around how this all can be uh, progressed. But there are a number of options, I guess, whether, you know, a commission of inquiry can be formed, a royal inquiry. Uh, Well, we've seen what happened to the NT Juvenile Justice Inquiry of Mick Buddha and Margaret White and really none of those recommendations have ever seen the daylight really on that. So, you know, there's a number of things that we just need to weigh up and think what would be the best and the most effective mechanism by which we can bring to bear for the work that we have to do here in Queensland. So uh, that'll be interesting discussion, but we'll just see what the best effective measures we can get out of it. Yeah, I guess, again, there's no one size fits all, but it's always good to see what other people are doing and seeing what's best for the unique circumstances in Queensland. Should we be optimistic that the various treaty processes in the states and territories and the voice campaign nationally will prove enduring? Yes, and I think it's uh, the way that these issues present themselves at the time. There is a huge opportunity to forward and progress those works. And I think certainly the voice, the Uluru Statement from the Heart and Treaty are uh, three of the, you know, big ticket items, I guess, for our people and for all Australians, really, in terms of that nation building that we have to do. So I tend to feel like sometimes I'm on that, you know, the wave of being on a surfboard and you come into shore and the wave finishes, but you've got to paddle back out there to get back onto the other wave. (laughs) And it seems to be like that a lot of the time. And, you know, I certainly don't surf or anything, nor would I want to. I have just got an image of you surfing those waves, though, (laughs) honey, Jackie. Yes, it's rather scary, isn't it? (laughs) I think you're very graceful in my head. You're doing a great job. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show this evening and sharing with us the insights into the really important work you're doing in Queensland. Thanks very much, Larissa. Always wonderful to talk to you. Jackie Huggins is the co-chair of the Queensland Treaty Advancement Committee. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. The internationally acclaimed Bangara Dance Theatre has launched a new production honouring the legacy of the late actor and writer Ningali Lawford Wolf. Sansong is a tale of resilience, celebrating the survival of community and culture in the face of adverse government policy. Coming up shortly, you'll hear from Artistic Director Stephen Page and Associate Artistic Director Francis Rings. Right now, though, some music. This track is by Ziggy Ramo and is called A to Z. You don't ever really do this, but you do it for me, you do it for me. 
And I ain't never really felt like this But I feel for you I feel for you Hey, hey, man, it's so new Fresh to me and it's fresh to you Fresh like daisies, driving me crazy Lately, baby, I don't want maybes Wanna guarantee you, warranty Want me to see that I breathe like a heartbeat Childish of me that I need a bleeper Baby, tell me you ain't gonna leave Falling in like leaves, leaves Wearing this heart on my sleeve Jeez, I just wanna do it I just knew it from the moment we met Moments we spent I would never regret I digress in my treasure chest I ain't never stressed All the troubles in life you make me forget And you don't ever really do this, ayy But you do it for me You do it for me And I ain't never really feel like this, ayy But I feel for you Hold up, wait a minute, I know all of this new business, I know all of them be tripping, maybe I don't care though, I don't care, yo, for sure, I've been round and twist for a minute, thinking that this world had me finished, I've been thinking, blinking, lanes, I've been switching, Tokyo drifting, I ain't never listen, let's bring your sweet lips, two lips couldn't capture your beauty, truly I love gotta be a movie, keep it moving, it keeps me soothing, and I ain't used to wear from the moment we met, moments we spent, I would never regret, I digress in my treasure chest, yeah, I never stress, cause all of the troubles you make me forget and you don't ever really do this hey but you do it for me you do it for me and i ain't never really feel like this hey but i feel for you i feel for you learn to love you showed me how to love myself before i met you there were stories i would never tell i learned to love you Now I'm coming at my show, letter by letter, you love me better. Hey, now spell it out. A, A, Z, Z, A, A, Z. So give me A, A, Z, Z, A, A, Z. That's Ziggy Ramo with the track A to Z. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Sandsong, Stories from the Great Sandy Desert, is the latest work of Australia's leading Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander performing arts company, Bangara Dance Theatre. Opening at the Sydney Opera House this past week, the performance showcases the incredible cultural resilience of the Walmanjari and Wonkajunga people from the Kimberley region in Western Australia. 
Choreographed by acclaimed artistic director Stephen Page and associate artistic director Francis Rings, the piece weaves a unique narrative of displacement, cultural disruption and an unbroken connection to land, stories and kinship. And joining me now to tell us more is Stephen Page and Francis Rings. Stephen and Francis, welcome back to Speaking Out. Hello, Larissa. Hi, Larissa. <laughs> now, I'm so excited to have you both here and I know I know you both very well, so I'm going to try not to fangirl too much, but for many of our audiences, they won't know you as well as that. So I thought, Stephen, we'd start with you about where you grew up and what shaped your worldview. I grew up on my father's freshwater country in the Yugambeh Nation of southeast Queensland from the Mananjali clan. And my mother's uh, Nugi, so she's saltwater. And I was brought up pretty much in Brisbane, what we used to call the Bronx of Brisbane, where they have new suburbia house commissioning foundations where a lot of big families settled in the early 60s. And we moved from the bush, from dad's country, and we moved there because my older brother, Philip, had epilepsy. So mum needed to uh, move closer to the city for medical reasons. I think David was a one-year-old, my brother David Page. And yeah, I was born about four to five years later and was there to 17 and pretty much moved to Sydney from then. And I've been into dance stories since then. <laughs> so that's a long time. I'm not going to tell you how long I've been doing it. But big, big family and big yeah. sort of proud, strong family as well. That seems to come through in the work and the stories you tell. Yeah, look, you know, like all families going through that time, through the 60s, 70s and 80s, you know, my mum and dad just put a roof over our heads and, you know, had many, many jobs. And, you know, obviously my older siblings had to work from a very young age and didn't have the resources that I probably did. You know, the the last sort of four lot of children, we got a little bit more resources in terms of education and having opportunities, I think. So with that, yeah, you've got these experiences of many kids in a family and, you know, like my mum and dad came from assimilated generations. So, you know, they, they couldn't celebrate their culture as much as... I feel empowered by it today, you know, let alone a wonderful, dysfunctional big family living in suburbia, Brisbane, still having connection to countries with my father's side, especially because we were able to go to significant places in, from where he's from and just sort of continue what was sort of left there, I suppose. So, yeah, and all of that just fulfills you with, I don't know, you just get that sense of, yeah, a little slightly first taste of resilience, really. And what about you, Francis? Tell us about where you grew up and what sort of shaped your worldview as an Aboriginal woman. So I grew up uh, at the base of the southern end of the Flinders Ranges, a regional town called Port Augusta. I was born in Adelaide and, you know, my father, he was a German man. He worked on the railways. He came out from Germany in the late 50s and met my mother She's a Gugatha woman and uh, she's from Sejuna, a community called Kornibar, which is just outside of Sejuna, about 30 k's west. Yeah, so I grew up, I guess we had a very transient upbringing. My dad moved a lot because he worked on the Nullarbor and worked on the railways. So we moved around a lot. You know, I kind of feel like dance was my first language because it was somewhere I felt safe and it was somewhere where I could 
just understand who I was or explore the idea of and make sense of what the world was around me and how I was placed in that. Yeah, a very kind of displaced upbringing. I think dance really grounded me. The arts gave me the language to explore who I am. And I guess much later on when I studied and joined Bangara and found this internal strength and resilience to be able to go back to my own mob and connect with them and I guess really validate who I was as an Aboriginal woman and really ground myself. So, yeah, it was, I guess, it's probably why, you know, I was attracted to the idea of being amongst a clan of other urban blackfellas who were also on that journey and being in Sydney where everyone was from everywhere else. So it kind of felt like I didn't stick out as much. And Mm. yeah, I was accepted. So yeah, I guess that really having that around me really gave me a safe place to train and to discover myself as an artist and grow, yeah, as a person. So I think you can just look at the work you produce and see how connected you are to culture and country and family. But I wonder, Stephen, when you're creating work, who have been your artistic and creative inspirations? Are there people who've sort of inspired you in the way that they work? I was thinking more about what those influences are. <laughs> now I was listening to the Fran actually, and I was thinking, you know, like when I said before, you know, leaving the sort of Bronx of Brisbane and that wonderful domestic dysfunctional upbringing, a bit of bush, bit of city. And the tricky thing is like, when Fran was talking about the college and all these sort of dancers or artists or people that wanted a career in dance, but it was a diverse of black fellas from all over the country just having, I really didn't know what I was doing really. I just thought I saw a, a dance pose and there was dance careers for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And because I wasn't brought up with, you know, traditional language or the knowledge of traditional dance, yet we've heard stories and Dad would talk very little about it. I think it was just being in that foundation, in that university, or, or that gathering of all these different diverse blackfellas from all over Aboriginal and Torres Strait. Like, I'd never had connected to Torres Strait people before, so there was a whole new type of uh, music influence and traditional, and even just living language, song and dance, that the school offered elders coming in and just hearing people talk language, you know, like that was like this blanket of cultural awakening for me. I know dance is there as the idea and that was what we were responding to every day, learn steps, learn choreography. But this wealth of cultural knowledge reset me in a way. Like I think I became, you become that three-year-old kid again and I was curious and so throughout my late teens into my early 20s, it was a real sense of discovering, resetting myself and saying, wow, like we have this culture. And so I was more curious to mum and dad then. And then it opened them as well. Like they felt they could talk about their past and what they went through. And as traumatic as it was for my father and his mother, I don't know, there was sort of comfort in storytelling together. And yeah, and then I think him just sort of seeing that. But on the other side of the fence is a huge world of pop culture. Like, you know, mum and dad were into old musicals and dad loved comedy and he loved Elvis Presley. He loved country and western. He loved Charlie Pride. He loved Freddie Fender. Like, 
mum liked big band music and, you know, I mean, they met by supposed to be meeting at the dance in Brisbane, but because she was bought what they used to call uptown blacks to the sort of more fringe blacks, because, you know, her, her father had money, you know, and so... She met him at the dance, but was at Cloudland, but he was at the boat shed. So they were at the wrong dance place because there was a difference in both of them and their upbringing. So I think that influenced just on their upbringing. You know, he was a bushman that loved country and she was sort of into sort of, you know, dressing up deadly and, and doing sort of, you know, going to Cloudland and dancing. And then all my sisters were into rock and roll and Beatles and Elvis. So, and then David was into disco. So, <laughs> so, so I, music, I think, kept us together. You know, dad would go to the dump and find, you know, an old record player and dad was a fix-it man. He'd fix it up. And so we always, I think music was the big thing and then just stories. And then I just started to like dance. Yeah. What about you, Francis, just in terms of, what have been the creative influences on you and your work? I find my inspirations from the most random places. <laughs> I look to my family and I think about my mother and I think about her journey and and how difficult that was for her and how much, you know, for that generation, their voice was taken from them, their ability to stand up for who they are as as women, the proud desert women that they are. And, you know, I think that's why me and Ningali probably gravitated towards each other was because our mothers shared that same experience. And my mother was just happy to be home with her grandchildren. And there'd be like letters coming from lawyers or from, you know, checks from royalties, and she would not even open them. It didn't matter to her that... Mm -hmm you know, those were not her values. And I think about that. And I think, you know, she was a simple woman. She was always happy, but she was, you know, formidable, so strong, born in the bush and just had all these kids. And, you know, her two youngest were taken from her. And I think that, you know, that trauma of of having to live with that and, you know, still when, you know, I'd go home to meet with her, she would never like talk badly or she was never bitter and she never held that and just think how hard that must have been for her to go through that journey and she knew that wherever I was I was going to get a better life and I was going to get more opportunities and that was a sacrifice that I guess you know she made for her her children so you know I certainly am shaped by that experience I'm extremely protective mother wolf of my children and of them knowing, you know, just that family is the strongest cement structure underneath your feet that you, that everything else doesn't matter and that that comes first. And and having that sense of home, I don't think I had that sense of home until I met my husband, Scotty. And, you know, then I could really kind of relax and go, oh, I can be myself. I'm safe here and I can grow a family and I can have a career. And so, yeah, but, you know, my connection with country and I remember from the very, you know, my earliest memories of going bush and going camping and having the Flinders Rangers at my backyard and having that to explore and just being inspired by country. And that was something that has been a blanket for me for all my life and something that that has always fed me, inspired me and culturally enriched me. 
So you two have known each other for a really long time. Francis, do you remember when you first met Stephen and what your first impressions of him were? <laughs> I thought he was a bit stuck up, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, I was... Probably because I was at Cine Dance. Was, yeah, he was yeah. at Cine Dance and I was at a party and he walked in and everyone's like, oh, there's Stephen Page and <laughs> Rockstar. And I, I think maybe I was a bit kind of like intimidated because he tried to talk to me and I think I just ignored him and walked off very <laughs> quietly. I was like very shy. First year, oh, but... I used to hate those times because <laughs> she just joined the first year when I got in the first year at Sydney Dance. So I'd only done like three years. But it was my brother that connected us, Russell, because he was young, in the younger years. So he was in the College of Frat at the same time. And I just hated coming back to. I actually, I actually felt more nervous coming back to my mob again, because everyone was like, "Oh, he's gone and jumped the fence and is working with white followers now." Yeah, big noter. Yeah, so that was my <laughs> first taste of like being in a camp of white followers <laughs> in this mainstream. And so, yeah, so when I went, and I remember, actually, I remember that I went up to talk to a friend. And she just walked away, and I was like, okay, "Russell, I'm going to go home." <laughs> <laughs> she could have scared. She could have scared you for life. <laughs> well, it was probably my first time I met Francis, so it was actually the same event. It's funny, it's like. Mum and Dad is at the dance. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, Sansong, what can you tell us about it? Well, yeah, it's just been a long labour of love, really, because it's all about friendship. We talked about friendships early and relationships, and we talk about the college and, and obviously the inspiration of the wonderful person of Nigley Lawford, who has inspired this whole this whole story and her family from the Great Sandy Desert. And, you know, we talked about uh, Wonka Juka and her place in the Kimberleys and she was at the college and uh, she's no longer with us anymore. And it was a, a connection we had before she passed that she just wanted to give a story and rekindle a story of her homeland to bring to Bangara. And Nigley had worked with us in 2002 and very close with Fran, like they both grew up together same year through 87, yeah. Yeah, uh, we auditioned in 87 yeah. and our first year was the year of the bicentenary, <laughs> 1988. <laughs> it was, was a big year. Yeah. It was a big year. There's a lot of energy around that year. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And we had some big personalities in our year. There was myself and Ningali Lawford Wolf and Christine Arnoux and all the stars. So, you know, I, it was healthy competition. But... <laughs> they were tough. They were a tough group of but strong that, women. That was the motivation that really kind of gave us, you know, that I guess that resilient spirit to kind of, okay, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to not only work your butt off because you're an Indigenous woman, but also, you know, you got each other. And I think that that really drove us. That was that internal kind of... And that college, like, through Carol Johnson, who came out for the Adelaide Festival with Elio Pamari and stayed in Australia. So can you imagine being an African-American dancer in this contemporary dance form that's carrying also Caribbean and other types of cultures, almost the same as Bangara, that crossover of contemporary expression, carrying culture. And then for her to see there's no sort of base where Aboriginal dance could, or Torres Strait dance could be celebrated. So dance was her profession. So for that to happen and a college to come out of that and then her to gather all this diverse of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and bring them together to make them believe in the dream of dance 
yet it was also going to awaken their own backyard culturally. So 1988, when fans talking about Christine and Ningley, and, you know, you've got to think, you know, Korea Radio and where Gadigal started from and, you know, you, you think of Amali, you think of all these, you know, Tramby and you think of Gavin Jones, the work that he was doing and, and media and... Just it was it was, it was, it was, it was so, so vibrant, vibrant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it was almost like it was the right fuel to have for this sort of concrete statement of the bicentenary. So mm. we were all thriving. That really shaped how you know how we, I guess, the form, mm. the the language that we were going to develop further and mm. that was to become, you know... It's been um, so a year, a year later. Yeah, yeah, it was a year later. Mm, and those right. graduates that were finishing college couldn't get work in the mainstream because of this diversity. You know, they carried modern, they carried contemporary, they did a bit of ballet, tap, jazz, Torres Strait. You know, this... this cultural, yeah. This culture of, late, mm. like, this, what is it, you know? And so yeah. here's to them, you know, for saying, let's form a professional arm and, you know, we channeled into that and we kept and cared for that seed to be planted at that time and I think oh my god I've been in Bangor for 31 years and then you just think carrying that legacy yeah. and, and we always go when we talk about Sansong we go where's it come from and it comes right back to those relationships and then you know our brothers we lose brothers we lose family we lose close friends and the best way to keep healing and, and, and thinking of memories is we have story and through story we work in an artistic profession where we have the resource to tell that story, you know, and dance is such a beautiful medium and for us to feel that we have a resource where we can just continue to tell those stories and they're present and they're current and they're past and they're social and they're creation and they're healing, you know, like... The themes are endless, which means our culture is such a big, wonderful, earthling well of knowledge, you know. And, and it's living. It's living. We're just scratching the surface. Like, I just think, I just think of all the great leaders, you know, I was reading on Luich O'Donoghue's book and I get so upset because she was such a force for me, you know. Like, I was in Adelaide directing a festival and... She championed me to to be up there running an international festival in 2004 and all the work she did in 2000. And, and I think of her because I think of my mother and how, she, yeah, just old people and what they carry and significant shifts in our culture, you know. Mm. And I always feel I just sometimes go, oh, you don't do much, you just work in the arts. And then I think, no, you know, it's such a... It's such an important message that we tell in the arts. Sorry, let's are forgetting all. <laughs> like I just, I just, I look at all of us. I look at our social black law foundation. I look at our, our law, you know, our justice, our health. You know, what is our black legal system? How, you know, like I just, we talk about 88 and we look at these cycles of constitutional not really shifting or breaking. And yet we have all this exhausted black leadership that just, goes through this Western supremacist cycle of just being pulled apart and constantly psychologically still displaced, you know, and we just feel like we're constantly washing the white laundry, you know, and I don't know how you feel. Maybe it's why we're so <laughs> obsessed and doing so many things because we know it's great black fuel, you know. And I think that's why the performing arts, the arts are so important and that so many of us 
engage in it in some way, whether it's we go to the performances or we write. Mm. Because as you say, it's this healing thing and it's a way of paying tribute to those who've gone before and Mm. those who've fallen by the wayside. Mm. But I remember one thing that you said to me once, it's always stuck with me when you were talking about creative process, is that stories find their own time to be told. Yeah. So I was wondering, Francis, (laughs) how you feel, how you describe the fact that it's now time to tell this story. Yeah, <laughs> they do. It's true what Stephen says, and I, I felt that, that it's, you know, mm. s- stories want to be told when they're ready, and I think our role as creatives is to understand that and to feel that. I think our elders have given us that amazing wisdom, like Stephen has just said, about being patient and listening and feeling when the right time is. And that's the respectful ways, that's the old ways, and not pushing it because, you know, you've got two different constructs that are trying to come together Mm. and that's not going to work. You know, you need to do it the right way. And it was certainly felt like the right time is difficult as it was. Ningali's relationship with the company has been long and extensive and... She was in our 2002 production of Walkabout where she guested mm-hmm. and performed in Russians, which I feel is a little bit of a prelude to what uh, Sansong is. Song yeah. is. And Rush as well, this yeah. social crazy... Uh, about the two worlds. Yeah, the we? two worlds, yeah. yeah. And, you know, she understood those two worlds better than us all because mm. she shape-shifted and she'd been doing that since she was born. And that's inherited from her people who were removed from the Great Sandy Desert, not only displaced to stations, but then removed again from stations and onto the fringes of towns and settlements like Fitzroy Crossing and Derby. Once the pastoral award came in and, you know, different government legislations that have shaped those people, yet they still remain resiliently strong and connected to their cultural obligations and their law. Yeah. Which has and been they unbroken. They really care for that country, uh, even though it's been up against those social challenges and change and contradiction. And, you know, there's a whole resource system there that they go, oh, okay, another welfare system coming in. And, you know, but they, they know they always got those stories in land. And I, I remember when Nigley joined because I did say to her once in college, it was probably her first two years in, and she didn't just come like all of us to learn dance, you know, she brought her country, you know, which meant she was still talking her language as a first language and her grandfather became a tutor for the college. So with her, she couldn't just come and dance and learn this other form of dance, but she was bringing her leadership as well. And I think you look at stage and screen and movies across the country and, you know, Phil Noyce's Rabbit Proof Fence and you look at The Secret River, Kate Grenville's Neil Armfield's director with Sydney Theatre Company, you know, she brought this cultural knowledge to all all these stories, you know, and... And generously, you know, gave and shared and mediated this space mm. of understanding where these subjects could Mm. be put in the mainstream and she was the one to be able to interpret it and make sure it was done the right way. Mm. She wasn't always acknowledged in the way that I thought that she should have been. She almost became the experiment of that. Yeah. I mean, we we can shape and find and, and find these sort of 
lack policies within the Western bubble and look after and care for intellectual property and all those sorts of things. But they were the experiment, yeah. you know. She, yeah. she was living and it's like mm. Jakapura Manyang and it's like yeah. the foot in each world. And then you have the urban version of that, the displacement version of that. And the great thing with Ningli though, and it's the same with Jakapura, mm. they came and they seen us, they seen displaced, assimilated generation. They were like, look at this yellow fella here. But he's proud of his culture. He's carrying his mother and father's trauma and he's obsessed with wanting to reconnect that energy, you know. And they never discriminated, you know, because we don't talk about that, blackfellas on blackfellas. We don't talk about how we observe each other and we, we look after each other. And one thing this company has given me and those relationships is to be one and to care as one. And that... You, that is priceless, you know. That's almost reviving in your own little funnel, you know, without any... alleviate the white fella. You know, that's that's the caring. People, land and stories. And Ningli was, whoa, she was up there. She was mm. the leader of that. Yeah, the sophistication in which she moved between those spaces was really incredible. And I think she saw she Ben along. She was sophisticated too. She yeah. could wear a deadly outfit. Oh, she and <laughs> be hanging out with, you know, with actors in, you know. International stars and she stars can carry and then herself. just want to go and have a VB at the pub and have a game of pool. Um, <laughs> but, you know... Um, she came and saw Ben along and she always supported us. I think, yeah. you know, Ben along and 30 years of 65,000. And that was, you know, when she cornered Stephen and said, <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. I want to come ready. back. She's like, George, I want, I want to tell to my tell story. story. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, George, I want to choreograph. Oh, wait a minute. You choreograph and I'll tell my stories. I was like, okay, you can do whatever you want because your story is going to be so good for the glossaries of our creations, you know. We have 30 years of 65,000, we have over 35 works and your story is now and you want to tell it. So I said, you tell us what you want us to do and we're really just continuing and responding to that story being told. Hearing you talk about Sansong, you see what a personal story this is and I know you both put your heart into every story you tell there's obviously something very personal about this and you've been working together for a long time now. <laughs> I was just wondering, Francis, what's your reflection on Stephen's strengths? Ah, oh, you know, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> my reflections Well, I think that there is, you know, there's this incredible, I like the way he says Goanna skin, but how he has managed to maintain and carry this for so long is an incredible feat. And, you know, I'm so, I'm so proud of that. I'm trying not to get emotional. But, <laughs> but, you don't you know, mind a bit of It's amazing. <laughs> you know, you think... That's very emotional. Because people are at the top, <laughs> you know, people who hold that position. I see the spears that come to him all the time. I get to see a different side. I, I'm very privileged to see him uh, be this leader and then I get to see him just be my brother and see him as a vulnerable Aboriginal man and he gives so generously and I think if people see the amount of, you know, energy he puts in not only to maintaining this company but the community and seeing him work with the young men in the vigil earlier this year for Sydney Festival and Wesley. And I was just like, oh, my God. And I was 
sitting with my sons and they, <laughs> you know, that's their uncle. They've grown up, you know, Stephen's held them since they were born. So that's their role model, their father and seeing their uncle Stephen and knowing that he's carving this space for them to walk into and they can stand strong. They can walk tall because of those sacrifices that Stephen's made. He might not have had the time I spent with my son that he's able to spend with his son when he was younger. And he he lets me know, he's, he's be there for your sons, be there for your family, because he's walked that and he hasn't been able to have that same opportunity. So, you know, there's been a lot of sacrifices. People don't see that. It's easy to throw spears, but, you know. And also to share that too. Like I think yeah, fish too, that's, right. that's what those values teach us even from our urban upbringings to us knowing all mobs and their values you know like my father had strong principles you know he might not much he said i don't have much but it really strong principles and values and and that's just innate in us as as aboriginal and torres strait islander people that's yeah that's the core of the resilience there are very few people in the world that can see and respect the space that they're in immediately and also be able to look into the distance and be the visionary for where we're going to. And I think Stephen has that quality. Oh. Yeah, I think so too. Well, and I'm glad I've made both of you cry. Oh, oh I know. It's been, I've been thinking <laughs> about all those elders and I just think, oh, Lord, what did they go through? And then, yeah. But, you know, you look at Frances. I mean, she's been there right from yes. the start. What are Frances's strengths from your perspective? Oh, look, Frances is like... I am so proud of her because, you know, you think of working with me, working with my brothers, working in this really, it's a really tough space to work in, you know, and she had such great strength. And for her to step away and go and find her family and trust, she has wonderful intuitiveness, you know, like... And I do too. And I kept thinking, oh, I love that because it does, it, it is a vulnerability. It's something my brother David taught me as well, you know. He said, why are you acting like a boss? You don't have to act like a boss, you know. And I was like, uh, am I acting? And he would pull me up all the time. You know, you don't have to be so serious. It's okay. Like, you know, we can care. We can, we can reflect and we can have memories. And I think David's values, even since he's passed, like they trigger me all the time. And I think with Fran too, I mean, she's just, she's loyal, you know. And that's, it's tough out there, you know, for people to feel their energy can be safe with you. And Fran had that connection with us. Like there was us three boys, Fran and Ningley, even Christine. Yeah, Jakapura on the side. Like we were so diverse clan. We had no idea. We were. I was 25 when I took over Bangor. There's. I had no idea what I was doing. Yes, I might have acted it because that was the only way I could shape into it and then learn quickly. But our energies just clammed together. You look at Sydney Soldiers, Sonny Townsend, Alma Chris, Yolandi Brown, Deb Brown, like everyone that comes into that company. You know, I still get calls from Mob in the Bush that might only did one year at the college, but they feel like they've had a success of a career because... They've watched Bangara grow. They feel like they're a part of it and they might have only done a year, you know. Mm. But that doesn't mean anything. That's just where we came from. And it's almost like you have similar journeys in a way and somehow you meet at these crossroads. And the thing is about just maintaining those relationships, how they're just organic, yeah. But Fran, oh, I am the most happiest I've ever been when Fran came back home through the backyard and 
bought a swag and said, okay, got my family now, got my strength. What are you doing? And I'm like, oh, we're in our fourth decade. But it just feels like we need to keep telling stories. So it's, you know, yeah, great bloody partner in crime, yeah. I tell you, especially in the arts. It's such a rich history you've shared with us, a beautiful, respectful friendship. And it's been a really wonderful opportunity to reflect on the creative contribution and mm. your leadership, not just in the performing arts area, particularly in dance, but across the country. We're really lucky to have you full stop, but we're very lucky to have you on <laughs> speaking out tonight. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Thanks Larissa. Larissa. That's Creative Director of Bangara Dance Theatre, Stephen Page, and Associate Artistic Director, Francis Ring. Sandsong opened on the 10th of June at the Sydney Opera House, and you can check out Bangara's website for details of their national tour. To take us out this evening, let's listen to some of the sound design set to feature in Sandsong. This piece is a slow-paced instrumental by acclaimed composer Steve Francis. That's the work of Steve Francis, just some of the incredible sound design set to feature in Bangara Dance Theatre's latest production, Sandsong. That's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Mm-hmm.